0: in connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to this very special Earth Day episode of the Science Night podcast. My name is James, and with me tonight is Steffi. Hey! And we have a very special guest, returning champion and Green Party candidate, Dr. Deviani Singh. Hello,
1: how are you doing?
0: I am doing great. Thank you again for gracing us with your presence. And we're going to talk about Earth Day. The first thing we have to do is say, what is Earth Day? Because, uh, you know, the odds are you probably have heard about it. It's kind of a big deal. It started on April 22nd. 1970 that is when we had the very first earth day and it began as an idea by senator gay lord nelson of wisconsin so up in Steffi's neck of the woods uh, when he borrowed the ideas of a grassroots approach from the anti-vietnam war teach-ins and it had a much bigger response than he expected he was hoping for a couple hundred students from Different campuses around the United States to to pitch in and have these little listening events. And the very first Earth Day had two thousand different colleges and universities, ten thousand different high schools, and a total of twenty million Americans participating in a variety of, of events across the United States. And you have to ask yourself what brought on this. Well. You know, the 1960s and 70s were a particularly dirty time in the United States. And what really kind of spurred on the idea for Earth Day was rivers just catching on fire. Uh, that is stuff that happened. And, you know, to his credit, Doctor, or, uh, Senator Nelson thought maybe we should do something about this. And now you can go to earthday.org and find all kinds of activities to raise awareness and improve your community. But I got to say, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with Earth Day. You've heard me right, dear listener. And don't get ready to cancel me on the internet just yet. I'm going to explain myself and I'll let the other people talk in just a second. But I have your attention now. I like the idea of beautifying our Earth and doing our bit to change the world around us. But I also think Earth Day has kind of turned into a way for huge corporations to virtual signal and create product lines and discount codes for you to think they're doing the right thing. That's my two cents. What do the rest of us have to think about this?
1: I I think I have a similar relationship with Earth Day. Like you know, James. It's it's, it's great to bring awareness and you know have people think this is earth day we should be thinking about the actions we can take um to make this a more livable planet a better planet but at the same time it's just become another um day for uh like you said companies and corporations to profit off of it like you said creating discount codes and having earth day sales isn't like the very first part of um the impacting the environment is reducing consumption and so that's you know, that's the first step that's going against Earth Day is by asking people to buy greenwashed items. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of this greenwashing happening. And so capitalism likes to maximize on anything they can find. And this is just another, it's become one of those days. And sadly, because they have the money, they become the loudest voices to having the money and advertisements here and there to kind of take over the voices of the people who are very prominent and have dedicated their lives to this movement, to the climate movement. So, you know, while, but at the same time, for people who aren't part of the climate movement, having Earth Day, it probably gets them to think about what it means and why it exists, and maybe be become future climate activists.
2: I also agree with all, both of you, love-hate relationship. Um, the way I've usually seen it beyond the advertising is more like everyone can be part of the change. So like I've been at, at places that I've worked and they give out free trees we can plant. And they kind of make it personalized, right? And what you personally can do in a sense. And that's kind of how the companies are marketing it. But how can we create the biggest change to impact the earth?
0: You know, I don't think it's by oil and coal companies um, tweeting once a year, right? Uh, but who, know, you know, uh, maybe maybe this will be the time that a hashtag by the Adani Group um, works.
1: You mean uh, coal companies saying that it's all green coal isn't is part of <laughs> shouldn't it be part of Earth Day <laughs> that we have you know, green coal <laughs>
0: in the sense that it was once a plant, you know. and you know i want to talk about a particularly nefarious thing that has come up around earth day which is these groups of highly polluting companies that are using the words of environmentalism to actively thwart activities by environmentalists. Specifically, I want to talk about an article from The Grist uh, that was written by Kate Yoder. She talked about a group of different kind of cabals. So specifically, it started in 1991 when a group of manufacturers, oil companies, auto manufacturers, uh, lobbyists from things as diverse as General Motors to the thing that I really have come to dislike quite a bit, the United States Chamber of Commerce, which just seems to pop up in things that make me a little bit angry. Uh, It is called the Global Climate Coalition, which sounds great, right? This coalition of things that are going to help the climate. But what they did, starting in 1991 with these 79 members and millions and millions and millions of dollars, was actively thwart any attempt to reel in climate change, which was just, you know, being discovered back then. Uh, And there is language that was sent out as bullet points from this group in 1991 that is still being used by West Virginia senators today.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to add to that, like we were discussing earlier is, you know, this is a known tactic uh, which has been done is to come up with organized, like, you know, funded by Big Oil and others to come up with these names that sound like green or environmental organizations, but their job is totally to, is to run these misinformation campaigns. And, you know, we saw this with the tobacco industry and we have seen this in the climate movement where Shell and Exxon and, you know, there's been those leaked papers where, Their own scientists in the 80s were warning them that fossil fuel extraction will have catastrophic impacts on climate change. And then they decided that the best way forward was to create misinformation and create doubt in the science of climate change to make people think that there isn't consensus and to continue maximizing profits and to keep increasing production. And so it is not that they didn't know, and it was their own scientists. They have just put in millions and millions and millions of dollars into misinformation campaigns. There's this book, I think it's by Naomi Oreskes, The Merchants of Doubt, and that talks about all of this. And somebody I know, uh, I've met personally before, and he tweets a lot about this, and his PhD researches on this is Ben Franta, uh, who's been doing a lot of work on the misinformation campaign by Big Oil. Um, So, you know, it's uh, very... It's sad but eye-opening.
2: That's massive, and it's a good reminder to follow the money. Follow how you should do research on where these companies originate from, and and that kind of gives you that insight on why they're pushing what they are and what the real hidden message is.
0: That's a tactic you can use in so many things, you know, from. Papers that make climate change seem like it's very unsettled and potentially not happening to things like, hey, sugar's fine. We should all be eating sugar. Um, You know, see who's paying for the research and see what kind of peer review process the thing that is publishing the paper has uh, before you just post it on Facebook. And Deviani, you talked about greenwashing. I want to talk. I want to. I, I have the list of different uh, groups that sprung up after the Global Climate Coalition became really successful, and we can th- we can see if they're greenwashing their activities a little bit. So, we have the 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 first one was the Global Climate Coalition, uh, and because this is basically a Life of Brian sketch, we also have the Global Climate Council. And my personal favorite, the International Petroleum Industry Environmental Convers- Conservation Association that was led by Exxon. And it was created, you know, after the Exxon Valdez oil spill just spent uh, billions of dollars from their coffers. They decided to do this. And, um, you know... It doesn't seem like any of these groups actually advocated for any kind of meaningful change. In fact, they actually openly bragged. They called it a brag sheet, but they bragged about their efforts to water down any kind of impact that the Clinton administration's decision to put energy taxes in place. So they watered all of that down and they openly bragged about it. So... I know this episode seems like we're just super super depressed about everything but you know when people with all the power and the money decide to do stuff like this it's tough to tough to stomach Daviani, what what should we do when we have these seeming seemingly insurmountable odds with these big companies uh how do we how do we break through the noise
1: i truly believe in citizen action and you know in protests and in peaceful protest and you know we've seen recently even scientists the, after the last IPCC report a couple of weeks ago we've seen the scientist rebellion taking place and people coming to the streets and i think that's really important in showing where we stand but at the same time we need to ensure that we are forcing our governments at all levels to really put policies in place that do this because at the end you know our protests are not the companies won't listen to listen to us protesting we are protesting to get government action and we can do that through voting for the right people Uh, We can do that by, you know, calling our local representatives, emailing them, speaking with them, letting them know that this is important and, you know, volunteering our time with NGOs that are doing some good work. You know, in Canada, we have 350 Canada. We have a few others here in the U.S. Also, you know, we have a lot of NGOs doing this work. So um, just like I say, if you tackle climate change, we don't have any silver bullet in terms of technology or action the same way what we really need to do as ourselves is do everything. But most importantly, we need correct policies. And that's not just to ensure that we have this just transition away, like this transition uh, away from fossil fuel to cleaner energy sources, but that just aspect is looked after. Because eventually, when climate change gets worse, and we've seen that already, what is it, solar is cheaper than, you know, oil and gas and uh, other f- forms of fossil energy, um, companies, you know, being capitalists will try to, you know, might eventually. Trans, on their own transition to cleaner sources because it's cheaper, but that's not going to protect the people involved in this industry. We saw that with the forestry industry collapse. We saw this, that the people who are the poorest get left behind and the rich CEOs take their golden parachutes and bail, right? And, and so we really need to make sure we're putting those policies in place now because this energy transition will come, will happen, whether we like it or not in the next couple decades, but what we can do through government policy is, first of all, accelerate it so we can, you know, hopefully keep it between 1.5 to 2 degrees of climate change, which is not a great scenario. either. Anyways, if people think that, you know, we're going to have a good climate at 1.5 or 2 degrees, we won't. But it's better than, I mean, it's way better than any other change uh, beyond that. And so... You know, we need to make sure that we're looking after the poorest and the marginalized as this transition happens. And we cannot, as we have seen time and time again, trust corporations to do the right thing.
2: We need to give them a voice, too, in the process. They need a seat at the table. Um, and you also, you mentioned a lot of things that people can do to engage with the government. But uh, you also missed, I, I guess you've said this before, you can join them, Right. You can be a scientist and run for office, which is amazing.
0: Yes.
1: I think we need more scientists in office. I mean, look at our government, right? Like, you know, if we want evidence-based decision-making, I mean, we are scientists here. How many of us really like to read those scientific papers? Oh, and how much do we really understand? I'll be honest, I've been reading, as a scientist reading these papers for like a decade now, and I still find it hard to understand what someone's saying mm-hmm. because it's jargon-filled. How do you expect a politician who has no background in science, to read thousands of these papers that are so specific to one point, and then pull out the five things that are five things that science recommends to do for a certain policy item, right? We need we need to be better as scientists to not only communicate, but like you said, I what I don't know if uh, the U.S. has it, but in Canada and especially in like British Columbia and Vancouver where I am, I've been insisting we should have like a chief science uh officer or a person right whose job is to synthesize the best available science out there and then communicate it to the policymakers we need the office of a chief scientist or something like that you know where we have scientists but as you mentioned or you can run for public office where you can be the person who understands the science and help uh create that change in government from within and you know i i think we've spoken before i ran uh at the state or province level in Canada in 2020. I ran federally last year, and uh, this year I'm running for city council.
0: And uh, I think we're prepared to give our first uh, endorsement here at the Science Night podcast. Yes, 100%. Yes, uh, we as a, an entity, uh, I two thirds of us just voted on this. Yes. <laughs> we do endorse Doctor Devyani Singh for for Vancouver City Council. So, so both of the people, and, and it, it actually maybe you and your partner that are listening in Vancouver, um, you know, go go out and go out and see what you can do to help this campaign. Uh, but I think your point is very well taken because you know, Canadian politics, are Canadian politics, it is. It is it is bad in the United States and it is bad specifically because people feel like they can't personally make a difference. Um, You know, I, I can tell you that you can. But until that that is seen in politics, you know, it's really tough. I did an interview that's going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks, but one of the things that that person said is that apathy lurks around every corner. And it's so true. Uh, and, you know, the, the United States political system just seems like why bother at this point? And I'm not saying that I am I'm, I'm expressing those feelings. I'm saying it's worth, it's worth trying. And I think if we get more scientists involved in the political process maybe we will start to see some of these changes maybe we won i don't know i don't know maybe you get in and you just turn into a bad person um i won't know until i'm elected to senate um so <laughs> we'll see
1: well i think you're kind of right about that uh getting people and i think a lot of people are disill- disillusioned with politics and you know that's why even i used to keep my distance is it's a dirty game. People are career politicians. Um, the oil lobby, I think, calls on average like almost every day. Uh, but like an environmental lobby probably has like six conversations or something a year with elected officials. So whose voice are they listening to? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen people with good intentions. I can say from uh, people I have seen elected in Vancouver into, um, you know, provincial and federal levels who have been climate activists and in fact are environment minister right now was a greenpeace activist and is now just approved a big lng um offshore fracking uh project literally two days after the ipcc report was released right so we've we've seen these this happen way too often but at the same time like you said um you know as scientists we give hope uh so within my writing what we call writing a constituency here um is ubc the university of british columbia and when i first ran I got emails from scientists telling me like, you know, thank you for giving us hope in politics again. Uh, thank you, uh, you know, for running and we know you'll do the right thing. For once, like, you know, I, I just one person gave them hope again because I represented change and I am, you know, I'm representing a change from the status quo, from traditional politics, the dirty game about money and just getting more and more, another million in my pocket at the cost of people and planet. And so I think Yes, it's a dirty game. And even if you don't win, just by putting your name out there and running, I think you're inspiring the next generation and a lot of other people to start taking action. And uh, I haven't followed the numbers in the last election in the U.S., but in Canada, the largest majority of the vote is the people who didn't vote. So if those people actually Mm -hmm. vote, we could vote in a government that we want. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, we need electoral reform. That's a whole different conversation to be had to make it more equitable and actually represent our government in North America in both Canada and the US. But at the same time, the people who don't vote, they have the biggest impact. Like they, everybody should vote. And it's, I'm amazed that the low percentage and low, low voter turnout that happens in the US and Canada when in a country like India, it's so high. Everybody goes to vote. So I don't understand. And our politics is very dirty of that.
0: You know, I wonder I wonder if that is a byproduct of and now we're turning into a political podcast and I'm I'm kinda here for it. But uh, I wonder if that's a byproduct of the people in power not necessarily wanting the grassroots and the groundswell that can come from everybody actually yeah. Engaging in the political process because it's true with with the amount of numbers of people who do not vote, if they became engaged, that is a huge shift in power uh, to an actual democracy instead of what we have now, which is is um, I don't know I don't know what 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 is it It's it's weird, right It's it's different, very
2: partisan, two mm-hmm. party in the U.S. You're either a for or against. You know, it and,
0: seems like. And that's so, so you're a member of the Green Party in Canada, and we do have a Green Party here in the United States. And you talked last time about how the Green Party in Canada is like an actual force. Uh, in the United States, not so much. I, I cannot think of a single elected official in our Green Party. Um, in fact, there's very few elected officials that are not members of either of the major parties in Vermont. uh, We actually have a third party that's that is is real. The Vermont Progressive Party has like real people elected, including the lieutenant governor, Uh, not to brag about my home state or anything. But what do you think that is? I mean, maybe you don't have an answer to this. Why? Why has the Green Party and third parties in Canada how how have they been able to kind of break through in ways that has not happened in the United States?
1: Yeah. And you know, I'm a recent immigrant to Canada. Um, <laughs> only been here ten years, so I, I i can't say like what was the ground reality, but um somebody I know who I'm running with on city council is but uh, an elected city councillor from the Vancouver Green. She actually created North America's first green Party. Uh, Adrienne Carr, she created the BC Green Party back in like, I think, 70s or 80s, um, co-founded. And, you know, and so uh, we've had a Green Party since then. And we actually have at the federal level, we have two MPs. Uh, Provincial level, we have two MLAs just in BC in the Prince Edward Island. I think we're in uh, an official opposition. And at the city level, out of 10 councillors, we have three elected councillors. I, I don't know, like you said, why that is, but maybe we've never been a two-party system. Although it is very, it's we we'll always we've always had a prime minister that's either conservative or liberal. Mm-hmm. But we've had NDP and Green elected people, you know, as well, holding the balance of power. Like right now, too, the NDP, which is a little more less of the liberals, is holding the balance, like is in a coalition, not a coalition, it's a CASA, which is a confidence and supply agreement with the government. And we had that in British Columbia with the Greens and the NDP in the previous election. So, you know, um, it's been there. But I think the US has always, it's, I think, always just done a two party system. And then, and mm-hmm. it's so entrenched over decades and decades and decades. I think it's really hard for a third party to break through. Sure.
0: It's almost like that whole big speech that George Washington gave about the dangers of a two party system. Yeah. We're like,
2: you know, our lived life
0: well this has been a bit of a downer in our earth day special but there is hope on the horizon and we will talk about that after this quick commercial break hi i'm matt and i'm phil and together we host the history's b-side podcast you know history is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. Every week, we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Or follow at History's B-Side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is history's B-Side.
3: So I'm here because scientists are not being listened to. I'm willing to take a risk for this gorgeous planet. (laughs) For my sons. And we've been trying to warn you guys for so many decades now we're heading towards a catastrophe and we've been being ignored the scientists in the world have been being ignored and it's gotta stop we're gonna lose everything and we're not joking we're not lying we're not exaggerating this is so bad everyone um that we're willing to take this risk, and more and more scientists and more and more people are going to start joining us. This is for all of the kids in the world, all the young people, all of the future people. This is so much bigger than any of us.
0: Welcome back to our Earth Day special. In the first half of the episode, it was a little bit of a downer. I'm sorry I let us down. The, to the dark recesses of my own mind and psyche but i've been told by our research and development wing here at the science night podcast that we should you know be a little bit brighter and you know if we want to have some kind of change happen maybe not think everything's doom and gloom so i am taking that feedback from our focus group that we just rushed the first half of the episode over to which is deep in the bowels of the mall of america
2: capitalism that's that's where we keep our focus groups
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly
0: and i want to start talking with like scientists pushing back against these big companies against the governments in which they are having to work within and the thing that is making headlines at least in the united states right now uh, but it's been happening for a number of months in europe and the united kingdom um is something called the Science Rebellion, where scientists are engaging in some light civil disobedience and doing things like chaining themselves to the fence of the White House or standing in front of J.P. Morgan and telling you about all the things J.P. Morgan is doing to actively circumvent climate change things so what do we think about the the very brave people who are putting their bodies on the line to get the message out there
1: i'm impressed and i think we need more scientists to join the science rebellion um and i think some of them are even like gluing their hands to the glass which to me personally i'd rather chain myself than glue my little fingers (laughs) 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 but you know um people have been saying like, if it's like, you know, people keep putting it on the climate scientists, I've heard that, oh, if this was really such a big issue, why haven't the scientists said something for the last few decades? And I'm like, "Uh, scientists have been saying it. But again, brings me back to have we been communicating it well enough, Mm -hmm. So have we, right? And so I think if this doesn't prove that we're, this is the most easily understandable way of communication is showing up and, uh, you know, in protest as activists and saying, listen to us. And it's actually pretty dire the situation right with the climate emergency but you know like you said i i am also very against the people and the activists who always say you know like we're doomed and the doomsday uh you know the speakers like um you know who are like oh we're we're, we're screwed we 1.5 degrees won't happen sure is reaching 1.5 going to be easy um probably almost impossible but it doesn't mean we don't strive for it and just because we don't meet 1.5 doesn't mean we shouldn't try to stop at 1.6 or 1.7. Why does it have to go from 1.5 to 2, right? We can, because every 0.1 degree centigrade change that will happen is, is a major, major catastrophe. And so I try to tell people, you know, it's not, yes, we have screwed up the climate. Yes, situation is going to be bad. But if we don't, there's still hope. Because if we don't do anything, it's going to be a lot worse. Right now, if we act, we could stop it at where it is, you know, and just deal with the catastrophes we have happening on the planet right now. And so I really want to tell people that there is hope. And, you know, if you don't take, if you take action today, we can stop at 1.5. If you take action tomorrow, maybe 1.6. But it is worth doing because every 0.1 degree centigrade means that many more millions of species and animals and potential of marginalized, impact on marginalized communities reduces drastically. And so, you know, there is hope. And we should go look at climate action with hope, not with, uh, you know, with doom and
3: gloom. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it's frustrating as a scientist because it takes a long time to get funding, research funding, which is given out by the government, which is very small amounts compared to the lobbyists, the money that goes into lobbying against this research. And that is so frustrating. And to get policy... That actually supports more funding or actually changes something also takes time. So at some point you get frustrated and you go to the streets and you, you, get, you get out there and you tell people what you're working with and what you're trying to do and how you're trying to help the world. And I think that is a powerful message to get across because I think it's often lost, like what we have to do just to get the resources to do the funding in the first place, and then how hard it is to communicate it to, to the necessary parties.
0: Yeah. You know, I think we've seen, um, you know, kind of the proof of concept with the pandemic. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that MRNA vaccines are something that were just started to be researched and developed during the pandemic. It's been happening for a long, long time. But when you take the funding on the funding question and the kind of um, things that hold up research out of the equation, science can work really rapidly, especially science working rapidly when everyone's kind of at home and we have to restart the gears of all these labs, uh, you know, kind of at the same time, but the COVID vaccines that are very effective, very safe. If you're not vaccinated, please go get vaccinated right now. Um, happened pretty rapidly. And I think what you're saying, Steffi, is is also a point that's very well taken. That's not the usual case. It's usually like finding that funding, making it through these regulatory things. And I'm not saying that all regulations are a bad thing either. I think they're very important. But I can see where somebody who, like me, who is hard money funded and doesn't have to worry about that because they just Teach in my lab, uh, where that can be really, really frustrating.
2: Yeah, and something as urgent as climate change that we need to do action now. That's why I love these people are out there, being rebellious, fighting for for the cause.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's also there's also other other good things that are happening. It seems like, at least in the field of fusion energy, uh, there is a federally funded and approved method for this all to happen a little quicker. And Steffi, you were at the White House to talk about this. Yes. I know we already did that, but I feel like we have to exploit that at every possible turn.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I, I I love that it's happening. I love that it's accelerating. I think part of it comes with This goes back to what uh, Deviani said was a just transition and bringing communities in from the start. And that kind of reflects that process. And I think we need to do it more. And we need to work with communities and um, be out there working with people.
0: It was really refreshing for that to be like at the kickoff event for this thing is that we're talking about equity and inclusion right at the very beginning. That is not something that typically happens in American politics. In fact, most of the headlines are about anti-inclusion and uh, uh, not having equity involved anywhere. Uh, So so that's a fun topic that we're not going to talk about today here on the podcast. But it was great. I loved it. I loved every second of it. Also, you were at the White House. I I feel I like I have to state this again.
1: <laughs> but I think Stephy, what you were talking about like getting the funding, is is very important because you know when we're talking about this transition and to tackle with climate change, um, every day, like you know, I'm reading about some new technology out there. Uh, I was just reading about some bacteria that can now uh, eat, as it eats methane, generates energy, right? Um, there's amazing. a lot of, yeah, and, and you know, that can, that can be amazing, right? But there is going to be no silver bullet, but you're right, we need more funding because it's not like we don't have the resources available. We have brilliant scientists around the world. We just don't have money to fund those scientists to figure out how to deploy them at scale. Instead, we fund the wrong things. By wrong, I mean, is something like carbon cap- capture and sequestration, which is like there's a uh, you know, I think the Canadian government's trying to put in billions of dollars into that, which is just another form of fossil fuel subsidy because uh, the existing carbon capture plants and uh, that have been working have been shown to be no better at, like, I think they've actually not even hit net zero in a way of what they're supposed to capture. And so instead of putting all our money into this, like, CCS, because, oh, we love the oil lobby. Uh, why don't we look We look into funding things like this? Look into funding biofuels, look into uh, maybe the bacteria that eats methane and generates energy yes. or fusion, right? Like we need to be funding a lot more research than just the ones that the oil lobby agrees with. And yeah. I, you know, we really need to fund sciences across the board.
0: You know, I think um, if you go back to our festival of fusion, 2021, uh, Arturo Dominguez said that fusion isn't a silver bullet, but we should be trying absolutely everything at this point. We shouldn't be saying no to anything unless we can prove that it's really not going to work. Uh, but you're right, like, why are we putting all this money into what Exxon says that we should be funding? I, I feel like I'm picking on Exxon. They're all bad.
1: Um. Yeah, don't forget <laughs> Shell and Chevron yeah. and all the others there. Yeah, yeah. make sure you call <laughs> them all out so they yeah, yeah, know. Yeah. We know um, you. We see what you're doing. Yeah, 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 And don't forget the Canadian ones too. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I want to make sure we we point to them too. You're yeah. I feel like we could just, if this
0: if this was not an audio only podcast, we could just have a, a reel of names that we are are officially putting on blast. Um yeah, clean coal. Uh no.
1: Yeah, clean. It's not. <laughs>
0: it's not. Don't even. no. no, no. Um, our
1: BC government is calling our LNG the green and clean energy is LNG. No. Like uh, just yeah. Um, don't even get me started. But I
0: hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think now is also the time that we should talk about again. Scientists should be getting involved with policy. Um, in next next week's regular episode, we're going to talk to somebody who's working in Mexico in engaging scientists uh, scientists and policy, and like having an interface between the two of them, which is I, I didn't realize how difficult it was to do that in Mexico. Um, so tune in next week. We're plugging forward. See, look at that. We're we're planning for the future. It's very hopeful now. Um but I think that is like a powerful thing that we cannot understate and we, we can't say too few times is that scientists need to get involved with these groups where usually it's just been the voice of the carbon emitters talking. Um so, so ahead. and I think
1: there's there's room for improvement there, um because you know let's not put everything on the scientists, like it's <laughs> it's a big problem, like, as you know as you know so you're uh, so busy applying for grants and all of this, and then you know when yeah. you you're a new when you're a young person who's all fired up about your science, you involve get involved in policy. It takes a lot of time, uh, you know, yeah. and there's a lot of engagement, a lot of time um and that when you come up for tenure, they don't look into that as your substantial contribution. Right, And so we need to be changing the system to make it easier for scientists to get involved where it is respected. Your community engagement, your public engagement, your uh, policy engagement is actually looked at when you come up for tenure. Otherwise, you're effectively forcing academia to not get involved.
2: So this is now directed to my university because I don't (laughs) have tenure yet. So let's change... Let's change tenure now.
0: <laughs> Once we get all through through all of the corporations that are ruining the world, we'll start with academia and just start rolling that out <laughs> yeah. too. Um, you're right. And that is absolutely one of my blind spots as a staff member who never has to worry about, you know, as long as I'm employed, I'm employed. It uh, doesn't remember, matter if I ever publish anything or if I get any grants. So that is something that I forget that not everybody is like me and has that very, very luxurious uh, career path. Uh, so, which is yes. why I'm
1: not looking at a tenure track position because there is no way I'm not going to be involved in policy and, you know, so working mm-hmm. for ENGOs and doing things like that gives me that flexibility. And, you know, as of October 15th, I'm going to be an elected official. So then it will just be mm-hmm. policy for me. Right. It's true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, you are. See?
0: Positivity. Amazing. Positivity. Yep. And I think to your point, um, this also kind of has a feedback loop back onto the Academy where people like you who are very passionate about these things will not be a member of that Academy because that's just not something that's valued there. So we're not having any of these voices within that system. And I'm not saying that you should like bear down and do something you hate. I'm saying that, you're not losing out. The institution is losing out. And they should think about that. Yes. This is now di- this is now directly uh, um, directed at the University of British Columbia, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think that the, at UBC, there is like some kind of policy engagement. I know mm. of two uh, fellow professors. Uh, you know, they have been consulting with uh, government, but they're both tenured. Right. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, the, the engagement you see coming from scientists is tenured scientists more often than not. Sure. Right? Again, because, you know, let's say you get involved in policy and you come up for tenure and there's some like some portion on the committee and they don't like, you know, your engagement with that. That's it. Right. That's uh, that sentence for your um, future career. And so,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and like you said, we need to be more inclusive um, to, and we need to allow these voices to speak up because people be are like, oh, scientists shouldn't be advocating uh, their science. But. It's not advocating when you're speaking the truth and saving this planet from catastrophe, right? If I have come up with results that are directly impacting people and planets, I should be speaking about them. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that change when the ozone layer, uh, the hole in the ozone was discovered and the person went advocating for it. I wouldn't say it was advocating. It was creating awareness about your science. And why shouldn't we advocate? If our scientists telling us to do something, we are citizens of this planet and we are going to be impacted. And so, you know, I just think that we should be getting more involved and we need to create systems where people feel more comfortable to get involved.
2: Yep. So changing, we just go back to H factor, which is a way you can quantify a paper that you write just to scientists, how many other scientists. And that's the only kind of thing we value as impact. But it's more than that, like you mentioned. So much more than that,
0: well, you know, I'm realizing too that my view on that the scientists need to get more involved is also like the same <laughs> the same uh, uh, kind of double double sided coin that is Earth Day itself, where I'm saying that scientists need to go out and do this thing, but really we need more of a systemic change so that scientists can be valued for going out and doing this thing so i'm glad i had you on so i can change my own opinion about this
1: them you. so they can stay inside and do the right research that mm-hmm. then they can go outside
0: and both actually go. let's just do both right everything yeah. all at once i love it well i feel like i've been inside of a bubble right here so i'm gonna go out and see if i can find anything happening in my own community that i can report on this earth day podcast so i'll be back in just a minute Act 3 Food Forest Festivities. Like I'm on this American life. In the spirit of Earth Day, I wanted to get out into my community and see what people were doing to celebrate this event. So I walked through one of the local parks in Windsor, Vermont, where I live, where I call my home. And I stumbled upon a group of citizens that were planting some trees that would go on to create something that they called a food forest. So I stopped in and I talked to them about their labors. Delicious. So I'm here right now with Autumn Ziegler who is planting some trees in Windsor, Vermont. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what we're doing here today?
4: So, we are planting a food forest, and a food forest, someone might be like, what the heck is that, is basically um, a food system that mimics a forest. So, you're going to have layers, you're going to have a canopy, you're going to have shrubs, you're going to have ground cover, and you're putting together these um, plants to be in a system that supports each other, Mm -hmm. just like a forest does. It's a very highly productive system.
0: Awesome, so we're not just providing food for the community, we're providing an ecosystem for lots of things in the area.
4: you got it.
0: Awesome, so when you went into picking the species that we're planting today, how much uh, effort was was put in picking the right species for this area, or was it just uh, what we think the community would want?
4: There was a lot of effort and it was a mix of both of those it was what makes sense for this zone for this climate and also what would the community be interested in and also what would maybe challenge some of the community's taste buds a lot of people maybe have never even had a mulberry but they're better than a blackberry and the trees are super prolific like they mm-hmm. produce a lot of berries
0: sure yeah sure and everything is native to this area correct no no okay so we talk about native species and invasive species a lot and we've talked about how invasive species may be getting a bad rap in some cases yes um specifically on the last episode of the podcast we talked about the spotted lanternfly and how people are doing way more damage to the ecosystems (laughs) in pennsylvania than the actual spotted lanternfly has ever done Um, but we do have some issues with invasive species in this area so So, what do you do? You have any thoughts on that as well? Like natives versus non-natives, invasives versus actual damaging things? Oh
4: goodness, that's a loaded question. That is a loaded question. (laughs) That's a controversial one. My personal opinion is I am not against planting non-native species as long as they're not highly aggressive. Mm. I like the word aggressive species over invasive.
0: That's a good point. Yeah,
4: because every plant traveled here from somewhere, basically, at some point, right? Like we. It is the way the world works. Everything migrates and moves and travels. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, I don't think there's any stopping it, but we can um, be smart in what we plant. And there's some aggressive species that are best not to plant in this area because there's nothing to eat them to help keep them in check.
0: Mm. So we're coming up on Earth Day. This is for our Earth Day special. Maybe go out and plant some fruit trees, plant some things, give some food to your community as well as some flowers and other beautiful things.
4: You got it. Build up your food um, resiliency in your communities.
0: Awesome. Autumn, thank you so much. Maybe we'll have you back on the podcast and check out how this is uh, going as it develops. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you.
1: (laughs) I think what you mentioned about the food forest is very important. I think Seattle—that's done one. It's got one. Maybe I, I, there's there's one of them on the west coast near us. So I think it's Seattle. But um, I think we should be doing more, especially in a city like Vancouver, where we're dealing with like a homelessness crisis. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of like um, spaces where we can grow fruit trees and food stuff that is you know accessible to the community. You know, we see so many cities in the U.S. that are food deserts. I mean, you know, and um, we need these, not just community gardens, but like community forests, sure, edible forests, you know, they provide shade in during heat domes and hot summers They provide food for people, you know, fresh food. And it's important. And I think this food resilience, I mean, other than within cities, you know, it's, yeah, it's really something we should be doing a lot more of.
0: And, you know, I think one of the things that I appreciated her talking about was how you can choose plants that could potentially challenge the palates of the people in your community and maybe broaden horizons that way. Um, I could also imagine these food forests as a great way for any kind of community outreach within the sciences where you can have people that are engaged in plant sciences talking about that and have some great workshops. And it also seems like, something that local governments hint hint could have as an easy win this is like fairly low cost you can choose an area where this is low impact to everything else and you can just make this happen i don't know why all towns aren't looking at the areas where this could be done and doing it
1: what do you mention about local governments and towns i think is another great thing to mention you were saying what can we do as citizens on earth day um i have like come to realize that's how much you can get done at the city level uh Mm -hmm. just be engaged in your municipal um politics and so i know in the city of vancouver i can speak from here but i'm sure like there's ways to find out in your city when the city council's meeting and when they do they have online the agenda and the motions they'll be passing and you can go and speak to them i've spoken i've i signed up to go speak at city council on certain uh, motions regarding net zero homes um, you know, regarding the climate emergency plan that our city has, um, or write to your local official because they're really listening to you. You know, your um, congressperson might not listen to you as much, and they're one voice in so many in uh, government. But your city, your your people representing you in your wards or at the citywide level, they're listening to you. So you know, write to them about. Have you thought about a food forest? Maybe I can work on a motion with you to introduce it to council mm-hmm. next. Right. Uh, have you thought about doing X, Y, Z in my neighborhood? Uh, and and help you know, as a scientist, help them work on that motion. And that mo- those motions are a lot easier to pass at the city level than they are at a state or a federal level. And so I would say that if that's one thing. One thing you're looking what to do on Earth Day. I would say go online, see in your city how you can in- get involved in that local politics, and and come up with some ideas you think your city should be doing.
0: And I got to say, speaking as somebody who was a local elected official, um, local elective officials in small towns and small cities love hearing some kind of constructive plan uh, that you could actually like do and have done rather than just emailed complaints with no actual way of fixing anything. So if you have an idea and you're like, oh, they don't want to hear from me, they absolutely want to hear from you. So reach out. I guess we should kind of end in a full circle sort of way. We talked about how Earth Day is this love-hate thing, and we talked about a little bit of the darkness, but let's bring it into the light. And EarthDay.org does legitimately have some great activities that you can do it can teach you how to compost it can teach you how to get in touch with local extension services so if you want to find native plants that i didn't realize can often be found for free if you want to plant native plants in your areas depending on your extension service obviously Um, but there are ways for you to do that and learn and earthday.org does have a lot of those things and i think maybe we should think of Earth Day as one of those tools in our toolkit where maybe we find that person that wasn't so on board and we can have an opportunity to effectively communicate science to them. So maybe maybe Earth Day does have its place. It's just not the end-all and be-all that certain companies want you to think it is. So with that, I... Challenge you, listeners of America, to keep Earth Day in your hearts all year long. All year long. And if you got a crazy idea that you think you want to get down in your town, tell your officials or just send it to the Science Night podcast. We would love to talk to you about all the things that you're doing to make your towns more resilient and cleaner and greener for years to come. And I will give Dr. Devyani Singh the floor for the final thoughts on this episode. So let us let us know what we, we should be doing
1: no i think you're right uh what, i like what you said keep earth day in your heart all year long and you know we are on earth so every day is earth day and we should be doing something every day and like i tell people even if you're unable to do something like you know um people say you shouldn't drive but you have to because you just you know there was no transit or something um what i say do everything with consciousness because that matters. When you're conscious about it, you will do something to offset it in a way. You know, like for me, like there are scientists out there who really demonize flying. And I, while I agree, that is not something I can give up because I'm the only one from my family who lives here. There, the rest of my family is in India. And for me, family is important. Like that one flight a year to India, I have to take that. But I do everything year round with consciousness to reduce my impact everywhere else I can. I go to a store, I carry my own bag. You know, you go out to this is the most important thing you can do is actually uh, something I do when I go to restaurants to eat, which I haven't done during the pandemic because I'm still not comfortable sitting inside. because mm-hmm. I would always have Tupperware in my bag and I would carry it because I know I will only eat half the food I order. And so instead of taking that takeout box, um I have my own Tupperware. And that really reduces the waste, right? Um so or when I go to buy loose stuff from the grocery, I actually just put it all in the basket and then just dump it all in my bag. I don't need to individually, unless it's something like, you know, green beans, um, you don't need to individually put them in bags because I have to come back and wash it all together and put it in the fridge anyhow. So it's little things like that, like do things with consciousness, you know, um, that really creates more impact than the one-off thing that we do. So I think I say that. And the other thing is, if you are looking to trouble your local politician, your know, municipal politicians. Um, I look at Project Drawdown. Uh, and, you know, there's a few other uh, organizations that have done a lot of work about what cities can do. At the city level, what you can do um, to make your city more green and more, um, you know, in a way, equitable and uh, accessible for everyone. And so I would say, look at some of those things and see what your city's not done. And, you know, like James, you said, don't just complain and say, I don't have transit at my house. or But be like, you know, maybe we, I can help you Expand on, 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 like, help you think up on how to expand transit and make it more accessible and efficient, right? Come up with solutions. Don't just criticize. Mm -hmm. And so with that, I will let uh, Steffi say something. Oh, and all the tools to reach out to me, ever, if you need any help.
2: (laughs) I think you covered it. I mean, you gave some great ideas. You expand from, like, personal to city and beyond. So we're just going to ride that out.
0: You just took those different particles and fuse them together into one coherent ending and it was beautiful and touching and very powerful (laughs) (laughs) well this has been our earth day special if you want to follow us and see what we're doing maybe i'll throw some earth day stuff up on my feed right now my twitter is just complaining about philadelphia athletics so uh so so go in there if you want to hear me rant about the phillies and sixers but if you want to do that, my Twitter is at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you?
2: You can find me at Twitter at Steffi Deem.
0: And Deviani. I know that you got some important things coming up with your campaign. So how can we how can we support you? How can we find out what you're doing? And how can we uh, be the first to know when you are elected as a local official in the city of Vancouver?
1: yeah uh feel free to follow me on twitter it's at kumari k-u-m-a-r-i underscore Deviani d-e-v-y-a-n-i and it's the same for my instagram which my instagram only gets active during political time but my uh twitter is academic and policy mix and then during elections obviously a little more political and then back to being academic
0: i feel like you got i feel like you got to plug the dogs uh, instagram too right
1: and yes how can i forget the love of my life my cute little puppy well He's not little anymore he's 70 pounds and he's 14 months old now um, he's a sweetheart and very good looking uh, his name is Zephyrus he's a husky Australian shepherd mix and he has his own Instagram which I think you will find amazing if you follow uh, his Instagram is at West Coast Panda boy but it's a boy with a BOI since you know we want to be inclusive uh, yeah. and not a you. Uh, but yes, uh, he's very good looking and I joke he is all oh, he gets me more votes than I think I get for myself so he's a great campaign uh, Mascot he helps me campaign he's got to earn his key and so that's what he does he goes on campaign walks with me dropping flyers he wears his little backpack with my flyers in it and goes door knocking
0: you know, this sounds like a very agile dog, Steffi. I feel like we have a crossover in in our future with some dog agility training. Uh, maybe that yeah. could be a campaign event.
2: Dogs <laughs> whose humans have been on Science Night.
0: Yes. All right. Well, that has been the Science Night podcast for this week. We will be back in one more week with another episode. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night podcast is a proud member of the River Power podcast mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Wait, you're still here? There's no stinger. It's Earth Day. Go out and plant some trees or something. And, of course, happy Earth Day.